All right, time to talk a little bit about the federal election. Now, eight days until Election Day. This is, as you know, the Thanksgiving long weekend. Uh, Some party leaders taking a bit of time to press the pause button. Let's check in with Global News reporter Travis Danraj and get a bit of an update on what's happening today and what we can expect in the final eight days of the campaigns. Travis, thanks so much for being with us. No problem at all. Uh, So, yeah, it is a bit of a a quiet day for some camps and uh, busy days for Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and also NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, The Liberal leader is going to focus once again, as we've seen in this campaign, on that vote-rich area around the greater Toronto area. He's going to be uh, participating in a Thanksgiving food drive uh, in Toronto a a little bit later this afternoon. And then he's going to a a local pub in the Newmarket area and he's going to be visiting some coffee shops as well, uh, and then going to a Hindu temple this evening. Uh, Liberal leader, or NDP leader, rather, Jagmeet Singh, is actually voting today in Burnaby, BC, in, in his riding there, where he's running, uh, and he's going to be speaking to the media after that, and then he's participating in uh, a volunteer blitz. Now, uh, Andrew Scheer, Elizabeth May, the Bloc leader and also the People Party leader, uh, Maxime Bernier, all quiet today. All taking a bit of a break for the long weekend, which which leaders uh, can absolutely do. It's been a bit of a grueling campaign for, for all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you saw last night that very stressful situation unfold in uh, Mississauga. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau was at a, a rally there. Uh, and uh, there were some security concerns. There was a bit of a uh, bit of a delay of him getting on stage. Actually, his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, was supposed to introduce him on the stage. And there was about 90 minutes where, you know, the press didn't really know what was going on. Uh, it came to light that there were some security concerns. Uh, and he actually had to wear a bulletproof vest when he came on the stage. Now, the Liberals didn't really speak a lot about what the specific threat was yesterday. We may get some more answers on that today uh, when the Liberal leader does participate in this Thanksgiving food drive and then speak to the press. And I suppose it'll be telling when we do see uh, Justin Trudeau out today and on the campaign trail today, because like you said, it was very different. Uh, There was the delay. Uh, You could tell he was wearing the vest under the suit jacket that he was wearing yesterday. Um, They'll definitely, I would think, there'll be a sense today with the amount of security and what's happening when he starts doing the, the appearances today. Absolutely. You know, it was a very scary moment last night, and some people have talked about whether or not Social media has played an influence in this and whether or not there's a threat on social media. We don't know that uh, at this point, but certainly things have been very polarized uh, online and during this campaign. So security, uh, you know, a primary concern for all of the campaigns. And Justin Trudeau is the type of leader. I've covered him, you know, various events. He's the type of leader that likes to be out there shaking hands. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, security has to, uh, really stay close to him. But when you're in the thick of a crowd like that, yeah, there are some serious concerns. And we're going to likely see security tightened around him. Yesterday, we saw heavily armed officers, more heavily armed than usual, uh, around him as well. But we are going into the home stretch of this campaign as we head into next week. Uh, and really, the push is on here for these votes. And, and you see kind of the dynamics changing. Uh, a bit here with Jungmeet Singh getting a lot of momentum after that English language debate. 
so we'll see. It's going to be an interesting one. Uh, absolutely. And it's really unfortunate that the security issues have come out because uh, no matter what, I mean, it doesn't matter how your political leaning is, who you're going to vote for, uh, what, uh, who you believe in the most or who you want to win. There's absolutely no place for any kind of violence or threats of violence. So it's really unfortunate that it, uh, at this point or at any point in the campaign, uh, we're seeing that happen. So hopefully, hopefully we won't see that uh, again. Uh, like you said, though, it is the final push. So do we get a sense, uh, and you just went through some of the areas where the leaders are today, Obviously, they're going to be focusing on the areas where where they need the votes, where they think they can get the most votes. Do you get a sense, of, though, of what the key issues might be or continue to be as we go into this final week? Well, I think you saw some of that unfold in the English language debate with a lot of focus there on uh, the environment and climate change. That's a huge issue for Canadians. Another big issue, and you've seen Jagmeet Singh talk a lot about this, is, is health care. Uh, they have, you know, uh, talked about their pharmacare plan, their dental plan. Uh, I think you'll see a focus on that. But uh, also a big one uh, is what Canadians deal with every day. It's affordability. It's the economy. Uh, and, and, you know, Andrew Scheer believes that he has the best plan uh, when it comes to that. He is going to be uh, likely focusing a lot of efforts on uh, Quebec in this last uh, week of the campaign because right now, the block seems to be pulling some votes away. So, I mean, the dynamics here are very fluid in terms of, uh, you know, uh, NDP. Could they pull votes away from the Liberals? Could that hurt their chances of uh, uh, a, a majority? Could the block pull votes away from the Conservatives and hurt their chances of a majority as well? And and exactly that. And looking at the polls, and as we know, we've learned from previous uh, election campaigns, polls can be wildly inaccurate. But if we are to believe what a lot of the polls look like right now, it has the Liberals and the Conservatives so incredibly close that already, or I mean throughout the campaign, but we've certainly heard a lot about uh, the idea of minority governments and what could happen, who might support who. Do you think that's pulling away from the issues that people are considering, or is that uh, just adding to uh, what people are thinking about when they go to the ballots. It absolutely is. And, you know, uh, could strategic voting play a role here? Well, I, I mean, it could. And there's also that big question about the, the folks that aren't really paying that much uh, attention right now and that will be paying attention in the last week of the campaign. Uh, you have to underscore how crucial this last week will be. And, you know, we, we, we saw how quickly things could uh what there could be a you know uh, a pretty big scandal that comes to light, uh, and that could shift the game here. A week is a very long time in politics, so we'll, we'll certainly see what happens. But yeah, people are thinking about minority, majority, and, and how that will impact things, and also what voter turnout will be. Now, advanced polls open on Friday, as I mentioned. Jagmeet Singh is going to be voting in his riding today, but. Uh, you know, the push to get the vote out for each party is going to be crucial. And also interesting to see how things are unfolding with support, whereas with conservatives knowing really pushing, uh, it almost seems like support for the NDP, thinking if an NDP vote takes away perhaps a liberal vote because of this momentum that Jagmeet Singh has, that would be good for them. So certainly it's not just voters thinking about strategic voting. It's also clearly the various parties looking at where they can get those votes or take them away from others. Absolutely. But the other factor here is that Jagmeet uh, Singh has said that he's not going to support uh, a, a conservative government. So, I, I, I mean, 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a game of, of, of chess here. Uh, and all the parties are looking at it. They're all looking at the same polls. Everyone is trying to read that crystal ball. But, you know, we will really find out on October 21st what it is. Because, as you mentioned, you know, polls, polls the real one is on uh, Election Day. Absolutely. All right, Travis, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate it. No problem. Well, I imagine a lot of people are gearing up for a big family dinner this evening. A lot eating turkey. There's probably some people planning to eat red meat. And if you find the studies about whether or not red meat is good for you confusing, you are not alone. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Scott Lear, Professor of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Joe. Uh, you have a, I know you have a nutrition blog and you've written about this particular issue as well because it does seem like it wasn't that long ago we were hearing studies saying or we were hearing information that red meat is bad, cured meats are bad, they lead to higher risk of health, uh, heart disease and such, and then it seems like we hear the opposite. It can be very confusing for people. Oh, yeah, m- most definitely. N- nutrition research is, uh, is pretty messy and it's never, never simple, that's for sure. So how do we weed through all of that, or how do we figure out what is good and what perhaps isn't so good for us? Yeah, and in this particular study that came out a couple of weeks ago that caused a, a bit of an uproar, it found the same thing in terms of that people who have red meat, whether it's processed or unprocessed, have a slightly higher risk for earlier death. Now, when I say slightly higher, we're probably talking about, you know, weeks or months. We're not talking years here. And that group said that, well, they just didn't think that that risk was enough to suggest to people to eat less red meat. And whereas other other studies, then they've gone on to suggest that people should have less red and and processed meat. Now, the good thing, regardless of what those studies show, people are um, actually decreasing their red meat intake and their processed meat intake. Um, Now, in terms of trying to to find find out, really, us as nutrition sciences have to do a better job. We have to stop doing these studies whereby we look at one element in our diet and study it to death without taking the greater context. Because if, let's say, you eat less meat, you're likely going to replace it with something else as well. Um, It's not a case of that we could just stop eating things and we'd be fine. We need food to live. So it could be that if you are eating red meat or, let's say, processed meat a lot and you replace it with vegetables, well, that might be a healthier choice. Um, If you're eating red meat, and then you replace it with Twinkies, well, that's probably a less likely healthy choice. And then it comes down to um, what do people eat when they are eating the meat? Is it the meat? Is it the way it's prepared? Or is it the fact that they're either eating salad or French fries at the same time? So it's what we have to do is a better job of communicating because in the end, um, people will just tune out because, oh, last week um, we said it was good. This week we said it was bad. Exactly. And that was my question, too, is when we look at these studies, do we look enough at the sample size, at the other factors of what people, like you said, doesn't it also matter what you're eating with the red meat or if you're eating, uh, what kind of red meat you're eating, whether it's uh, processed or not? It seems like there are so many other factors to it. 
Yeah, most most definitely. And how a lot of these studies that we hear about, whether it's about meat, whether it's about eggs, because those were in the media last year for flip-flop studies, what I'd call, um, is we ask people what they ate. And most times these studies are only asking once, and then we kind of follow them for 10, 15 years and see, you know, how many people get sick, how many uh, die early, and and look at that association with that one time that we asked them. And some, some of those studies may ask how many eggs you had in the past week or how many servings of meat you eat um, on average in a given year. And we know that that's not very reliable. It might be an easy way to ask people what they ate, but um, it doesn't, most times we might remember what we ate, but maybe not how much. Definitely, like, how did we cook it? Did we add any sauce, any spices? Was it grilled? Was it fried or stuff like that? So that also affects the nutrition value of the food it, itself. So that's another way that it becomes um, complicated. And as you said, it's it's not like we're eating. It's not like there's a population that's just eating meat. And we're eating a whole bunch of other things as well. And, and I would imagine, too, if, if you're taking a study or the study results are based on one question, uh, they're not then factoring in physical activity and other life choices that you're making that could also have a big impact. Yes. Yeah. And uh, sometimes what we tend to find is um, uh, one healthy behavior clusters with other ones. And uh, so years ago, there was um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there were a lot of studies saying that people who took vitamin supplements were healthier. But those people were also more likely to exercise, had moderate alcohol intake, um, uh, had less alcohol, uh, as well as didn't smoke. But when we started getting into, so, so vitamin supplements are something that you can do what we call a randomized study where you'd give a group of people a vitamin supplement or a placebo. And in those studies, we found that the vitamin supplements didn't have any benefit. So it's not always the case that when we get what we call these observational studies, where we just kind of, the researchers sit back and watch and see what happens, they don't always translate into um, a finding where we can say definitely, yes, the vitamin supplements are definitely the meat or definitely the vegetables are um, are either harming or helping us. And so what do you suggest people do then? Because there's even, there, there are other studies too where we think, uh, you mentioned vegetables. I think people would agree. We all, we all think vegetables are healthy. We're told that they're healthy. We should eat more of them. Uh, but then there are studies that say, and, and you've written about this, something like beta carotene. It will help prevent diseases. Uh, but is that actually true? Do, do we actually even know? Yeah, so... Um, <clears throat> With the, uh, the beta-carotene, when it was looked at as a supplement, this is, again, like um, the obsession with nutrition science is that we want to reduce everything. Like if, if somebody says apples are good, well, what is it in the apple that's good? Can we make it into a pill? Well, what we're really learning now is that it's the food itself. We can't take the beta-carotene out of a carrot, and that's good for us and not eat the carrot. Uh, so it's, it's a slow... It's a slow learning process, and um, we are. There's pretty much widespread. It's an um, agreement that eating fresh fruits and vegetables are are good for us. And uh, a lot of people will say, you know, maybe before you have dinner, have a salad and then eat some fish or some lean meat or something like that. 
Now, what it comes when we're um, trying to provide guidelines to people, there's been a shift, it's a slow shift, but a shift away from these like isolating the meat, isolating the fish, isolating the, you know, the vitamins, and looking at food patterns. And looking at, um, you know, you can get healthy fats from a variety of different foods. You can get um, healthy protein from a variety of different foods. And so looking at those things overall, and a good example of a food pattern diet is something like the Mediterranean diet, which is, you know, has um, healthy fats from things like nuts, olives, um, there's fish, there's uh, fruits and vegetables. But all of the diets that we're probably familiar with, what I see is common, whether it's like a, a paleo high meat diet, a um, vegan diet, they're all advocating food in their, as close to their natural state. None of these diets are saying we should eat processed food. And I think that's probably where the, um, the value of any of these diets are, is we're getting away from processed food. Which makes sense, I think, even if you're not looking at studies, it makes sense that food in its, in its whole state or natural state would be better for us. Yeah, most definitely. And, and processed foods have been engineered to uh, taste taste good, to appeal to, um, like, for example, our taste of salt or sugar. You know, um, we have a strong taste of salt, which evolved um, over thousands of years, because if you think of living kind of um, in a older times, hundreds or centuries ago, that salt isn't very prevalent in like fruits and vegetables and stuff. So our taste buds evolved that we need salt to live. But now we're, we might be having too much of that. All right. Well, it's uh, interesting uh, to break it down that way and to look at it uh, from that uh, through that lens. Uh, Scott Lear, thank you so much. We will leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thanks a lot, Joe. So if a premier's chief of staff shreds an investigative report, is a law broken? We learned this past week that no, technically speaking, it is not. But it certainly did raise a lot of questions. And joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Mike Larson, president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. Uh, what was your take when you heard uh, that uh, when the news broke that Jeff Meggs, who, who is John Horgan's uh, chief of staff, shredded a copy of the investigative report taking a look at the Speaker of the House? Well, I, I think like most people who heard that at the time, uh, I, was, uh, I was surprised. Uh, I, was, uh, I was concerned. Uh, I wanted to know more, obviously, to get to the bottom of, uh, of what, what had happened. Uh, and details have been you know, trickling out uh, throughout the week. Um, but you're absolutely right when you say that, uh, technically speaking, it appears that no law was actually broken in this case. Um, it, to my mind, when, when you have uh, allegations of serious wrongdoing taking place within government, and then the next step after receiving those allegations is to shred them, it raises some questions about uh, um, you know, the importance of preserving a paper trail. Um, but the, I think really the big thing is that this showcases a real gap in our laws. And does it show, do you think it goes beyond this one particular case in that if this, if there isn't a law against this, like you said, anytime we hear the words shredding and report, mm-hmm. senses go up and we, we pay a bit more attention. Does it, mm-hmm. does it point to a bigger picture that there aren't better rules or stringent rules when it comes to that kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, this is so this is not the first time that this the kind of thing has happened. This is not even uh, outside of what I would say is business as usual. 
Um, the issue is that, and this I think comes as a surprise to many people, but the, the legislature itself is not subject to our uh, records retention rules in BC, uh, nor to our freedom of information laws in BC. So when people think of the legislature, they think, well, that's the government, but it's actually quite different. Government bodies are subject to our FOI laws, uh, and there are lots of rules that would prohibit this kind of document destruction, uh, but not uh, the legislature itself. It's a gap that has been well recognized. In fact, all of this relates to the scandals that were investigated as part of the Pluckus report uh, into the, the legislature. And in response to that report, several of the major ombudsperson offices in British Columbia who have a responsibility to hold government accountable uh, issued a letter saying, listen, this is to the Legislative Assembly. They said, you have to put forward legislation to bring the legislature under FOI laws. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult for us to reduce scandal uh, and reduce corruption in British Columbia. And to date, that's not happened. And that's been raised as well in that this particular case of the speaker and the clerk, we came to light. And I think what a lot of people didn't realize was that not only are they not covered under freedom of information, but there is also not the same level of transparency where these are two positions that are in charge of spending taxpayer money. But taxpayers have no way of trying to find out or getting more information on how they're spending it. That's right. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a curious uh, omission in, uh, in in BC's laws. I, I would say you know it's echoed in many other jurisdictions too, where you have uh, you know government office, government ministers' offices, cabinet offices, uh, as well as aspects of legislatures that are kind of off the books as it comes to FOI laws. They have their own internal policies around uh, retaining and sharing information, uh, but they're not caught within the uh, uh, the framework of, of legislation like the FIPA. Right. So do you think there's any chance that this will change or that because of this, at least the, the conversations are being had, is there any chance that we might see better rules? Well, I think there's not only a chance, but I think an urgency. You know, when you look at this, this is an issue uh, that, of course, at the, at, at the present moment relates to a scandal under the, under the uh, watch of the current government. But this has been going on for many years. I think all parties in the B.C. legislature um, have an opportunity to introduce very reasonable, um, long-called-for reforms to our freedom of information laws uh, in the public interest, right? At the end of the day, um, regardless of who scores partisan points on this issue, at, at the end of the day, if you don't have a transparent government, it's the public that loses out. And so I think that uh, everyone who's concerned about this within the legislature uh, can, can put their heads together and start putting forward very reasonable uh, reforms to our FOI laws. And, and, and a starting point for that would be to ensure that all um, bodies within government that do public business are subject to our transparency laws. And I think, it, or, or would you agree that it even goes further? And like you said, this isn't something new. We've seen this with previous governments as well, whether it's triple delete, to, mm-hmm. uh, this directive to use to not use company email, to not have a paper trail, or in today's world, not have an electronic and email trail. I mean, these are these are these are decisions that are made specifically to thwart that, to to make sure that there isn't something that can be FOI'd. Uh, does that yes, need sir. to change as well? Hundred percent, absolutely right. Our FOI laws in, in Canada, in general, and in BC are, are outdated. Um, they were they were drafted initially at a time when, you know, using digital messenger services simply wasn't something that was contemplated in terms of government business. And they're sorely in need of an update. They're in need of an update to ensure that there's a, a statutory duty to document so that public business must be recorded in some fashion. There need to be penalties for uh, interference with FOI and for the uh, improper destruction of documents. There's a whole host of uh, shortcomings and and black holes and gaps in our FOI laws that have long been identified, in fact, by the all-party special legislative committee to review the act. 
It's just that those recommendations to reform it, which are quite reasonable, have been sitting on the shelves of successive governments. And, and you know, I, I may be cynical in saying this, but it's one thing to talk a big transparency and accountability game when you're in opposition. Of course, everyone likes to say that the current government is not as transparent as they should be. But when governments take power, they rarely move forward with meaningful reforms to those transparency laws that they were so critical of before. So, you know, we've had such an accumulation of scandal in British Columbia around transparency. And you mentioned triple delete. There are many others uh, that I think now more than ever, there's really a call for something very reasonable and sensible to be done. And again, in the public interest. Right, because, I mean, the, the public, we're, we're not that dumb. We get it when it's triple deleted or when a government body comes out and says, oh, we didn't, nobody emailed anybody. Everything about that major announcement and that major decision, that was just done through conversations. There's no actual record. Uh, it's ridiculous. Absolutely. It is ridiculous. I mean, the entire point of these laws was to ensure that there was a preservation and access to important government information so that citizens could make informed decisions about their democracy and hold government to account. And so the the ways of circumventing or, uh, you know, not necessarily complying with these laws um, have long been known by governments. They're gaps that need to be fixed. And if they don't get fixed, uh, business as usual is, is opaque. Uh, and again, not, not in the interest of uh, British Columbians. Uh, in the case of the, the report that Jeff Meggs shredded, uh, in that case, one of the, I suppose, reasons given or, or explanations was that a copy of that report had already been sent to police, I believe it was. Does that, do you think, in any, does, is that reasonable that, that the reason given was, oh, well, it's not like it was the only copy and another copy had already been sent along? Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the story here. We, when we think of shredding again, you know, there, there's this automatic, uh, in, you know, impression we get that something nefarious is taking place. Of course, records also have a digital trail. My interest is ensuring that uh, there is uh, a preservation of the record in general and that uh, who knew what when is also preserved as part of that trail. Um, physical hard copies, not necessarily problematic to destroy those. Uh, in some ways, actually, uh, uh, deleting those kinds of records if in a hard copy, so long as a digital copy is preserved, uh, is in, in, in good practice for um, for information management so as to reduce uh, uh, possible uh, um, information being mishandled. But um, it is important that the uh, the records themselves are preserved. I do worry that when you have an office that's not subject to our FOI or, or records retention laws uh, and, and records are shredded, it makes it difficult to know who knew what when and who ought to have done something at what point in time. Uh, absolutely. All right, we'll leave it there, Mike. We're out of time, but thank you so much for joining uh, the program today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, one of the most beautiful parts of fall, I think we can all agree, is when the leaves change and we see all the great colors of the leaves. leaves, uh, Inevitably, though, they fall to the ground. And whether you're using a leaf blower, which seems to be the method of choice by more people this time of year, or if you are raking the leaves the old-fashioned way, if you despise doing that chore... This is something you will be happy to hear. The Nature Conservancy of Canada is saying that maybe, just maybe, you should leave the leaves on the ground. Andrew Holland is the National Media Relations Director with the Nature Conservancy of Canada and joins me now on the line. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, this is great advice for anybody who hates the job of raking or gathering the leaves. So what are the reasons the Conservancy is saying it's probably better just to leave them where they are? Well, there, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, I, I guess for your own personal reasons, 
Uh, you know, you get to avoid some back-breaking yard work. Uh, you get to put it off till spring, so that's a good idea. Uh, but, you know, in, in seriousness, it, it mulches your lawn. These leaves are, are really good for improving the soil quality of your lawn, uh, and they act as a natural fertilizer, so you save a few dollars as well. But from a, from a it's an environmentally friendly thing to do. It really is because uh, there's insects that sort of get habitat over the winter uh, beneath those leaves, and you may not like insects, but uh, the birds do. And that is a food source for jays and chickadees and goldfinches. And so that's really important to have a food. We think of feeding the birds, you know, in the spring and the summer, but we don't necessarily think of it in the winter when we, in many parts of Canada, we have a very cold uh, climate and uh, they need food. Right. And and I guess, does it change then across the country? Because you brought up climate uh, here in B.C., it tends to be much milder. Uh, some winters we don't even get snow. So it's it, is it different in places like B.C. where the leaves then would be kind of out and exposed throughout the fall and winter compared to some place that actually gets a lot of snow? Yeah, you're right. And there are differences, certainly, in, in different parts of the country. Uh, you know, in, in Vancouver, like you say, you don't get a lot of snow cover. So in, in some cases, people may want to clean up some of the, their leaves. In particular, if you have a, a storm drain uh, near your house, you don't want a big soggy mess near that and, and having water run up on your lawn and, you know, these catch basins, uh, you know, leaves and, and that kind of debris can block them, causing flooding and a problem. So you want to be a good neighbor. And in some cases, too, if you have a, some tidier neighbors, uh, they have meticulous-looking lawns. You don't want them necessarily giving you the side eye and wanting to know why aren't you cleaning yours, and they don't want your leaves blowing across the road into their yard. So it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, suggestion. But uh, there are reasons to to leave one layer of leaves on your property. Right. And and I guess it does come down for a lot of people. It's the aesthetics of it. And if your yard then with the, the rains, so we might not get a lot of snow. We do tend to get a lot of rain. When the rains hit, then suddenly you've got this soaking wet layer of leaves and piles of leaves on your yard. And then I guess there's also the concern, like you said, of insects like them and birds like them. Is there also the concern of even attracting more types of vermin like rats or other things that you really don't want hanging around? Not really. I, I mean... Our understanding, and from the Nature Conservancy of Canada's perspective, that rats and mice and this type of stuff, they're not drawn to big piles of leaves. And all we're suggesting is people leave one layer of leaves uh, on their property. Okay. Uh, interesting, that that in, that um, that idea then of leaving the layer. And then the idea, like you said, too, that it provides a, a natural mulch for the lawn. Uh, do, do they, does it just kind of deal with itself then? So come spring, do you need to do anything? Yeah, we would recommend uh, cleaning them up, you know, by, I, I would, we, we would suggest around Mother's Day. That's a good time to, to pick up, uh, pick up your leaves at, at that time. Uh, that's a, you know, by that time, winter's largely done. Uh, but the, the leaves sort of break down, they act as a nutrient uh, for your lawn and for your soil. So that's good. And in the cases of many parts of the country, the leaves are important for pollinators and provides, you know, for butterflies and this type of thing. It provides habitat for them over the wintering months. 
So that's a good thing. And then even in your gardens, uh, people with gardens with, with dried out seeds and this type of thing, we encourage people to, to leave them as is because that's a food source. The, uh, if there's dried fruit or seeds uh, in your garden, that can help birds get through uh, winter in some cases. So there's just a, it's it's good news, I guess, if you don't like raking <laughs> leaves. Um, personally, I clean up pine needles because they're very acidic and they can do a lot of damage to your lawn. So I do make an attempt to, to clean those up quite a bit. Uh, you know, that's just the, a good thing to do. But I do lay, leave a layer of leaves around. And you raised another point that I wanted to ask. You mentioned pine needles. Does it matter what types of leaves you're leaving on the yard? Yes, it does. I think pine needles are generally not very good to have around because they are acidic and they're just not really good to have. They're just so acidic and they chew up your soil. So leaving a, you know, leaving a, a layer is not too bad, but we don't recommend, frankly, Jill, leaving an awful lot because some people, you, you talk about aesthetics and you raise a great point. Uh, you, you know, some people may be worried about smothering their lawn or having clogged gutters. And so, you know, that's an issue for people. So what we what we tend to suggest is lay have a layer of leaves on your lawn and then tuck others under bushes or in other areas away from your house. And that these leaves then would provide good mulch for uh, shrubs and help prevent what we would have in, in many parts of the country a freeze thaw cycle in the roots uh, through the winter of your soil. So uh, that's a, another sort of strategy to uh, you know get away from from some of these issues. It's in some lawns you get a lot of leaves and you just don't know what to do with them. It's a lot of work. People, uh, you know. <laughs> You, some people feel guilty not to do it. If your neighbors have a nice, well-kept lawn, you know, you want to keep up with them. And, uh, you know, I know that in many communities you can rake the bags and and put them out by the side of the road and they get picked up at specific dates. Uh, and that's that's a good thing. Some people prefer to mulch. Uh, take your lawnmower and mulch them up. And, and that's another way people uh, deal with them as well. Well, and you raise a point there, too, because a lot of people actually wait for that specific date, the time to put it out on the curb or to get rid of them. But this uh, might be another uh, or an alternative for people. That's right. Um, you know, basically leaving a, uh, a layer of leaves is, is helpful for insects that overwinter, provides food for the birds in the spring. Uh, so they, these leaves are habitats for butterflies and pollinators. That's, that's kind of important. Uh, you know, so people can help migratory and residents, bird, resident birds uh, that overwinter here in Canada survive our harsh winter in some cases by not clearing up their gardens. These fruits and seeds, they're a crucial food source, uh, you know, for many songbirds. So, uh, you know, overwintering insects in our yards, uh, you know, I, my wife doesn't like bugs. A lot of people don't, but the birds do. And <laughs> So that's just, a, you know, that's just a, these winter habitats for our native birds and insects. That's a food source come the spring, and uh, that's when nature can take care of itself. And this is sort of what it's all about is restoring, you know, having room for nature in your yards, if at all possible. All right. Well, great advice. And again, uh, welcome advice for people that don't like the chore of dealing with the leaves and raking them up. Andrew Holland, thank you so much for your time today. 
My pleasure and uh, happy Thanksgiving to, to you and your listeners. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.